going on back there, though, I think. Yeah. Uh, good morning and welcome to our family gathering. It's good for to, to be here with you guys and welcome if you're new with us. Uh, my name is Jay and I have a chance to help lead this community called Cultivate. Um, we have been doing a series uh, through the book of Ephesians if you're new with us. Um, and we're, I, that book starts on page 814 in the Bibles that we have uh, underneath the seats if you want to follow along, especially this morning. So it's good practice for you uh, to be able to find that and and uh, read along with us. Uh, but we, we've been in the book of Ephesians uh, for a little while now. We're going to be in it for the rest of the summer. And what we're doing through the book of Ephesians is we're, we're kind of rediscovering what it means to be the church. We've been at this now uh, as Cultivate. We planted seven years ago, uh, a little over seven years ago. And um, seven years is a good amount of time now f- for us to go, okay, let's let's think back now, let's think about what what does it mean to be the church? What does it look like for us to be this people that God has saved and brought out from the world and now is sending back into the world with a, a message of freedom and hope? What does it mean for us to be that kind of people? Um, and for us, one of the things that we're discovering is is that it looks like two things that seem like they shouldn't coexist simultaneously, but they do. Uh, and those two things are mess and beauty. That we come uh, to Jesus as a mess. I, I mean, I, I think back in my life uh, at the age of 21 when I came to know who Jesus was and had a personal relationship with him. I think, man, like God saved me in the midst of a... I was just a mess. Um, and, and in many ways, we continue to be a very messy people. I said this on week one, like if you if you think cultivate is great, give us a chance, like we'll disappoint you. It's going to like at some point um, it's going to happen. Why? Because we we continue to to uh, exist in in a state of mess and we exist in a messy world that's still full of sin and brokenness um, that God is reconciling to himself. But at the very same time. There is beauty in the midst of the mess, that God is making something beautiful out of us as a people. He's turning us into something that um, is not that it's just okay to be messy, but because he loves us in the midst of that, he's making us new and he's turning us into something valuable um, that displays his glory. And so, so we're calling this series This Beautiful Mess for that reason. And if you remember, if you were here last week, we talked about the mystery of the gospel and how that mystery, the beauty of the gospel, meets us in the midst of the mess of suffering. Because Paul was in prison as he's writing this. And if you remember, he took a little bit of a detour uh, because there were some things on his mind. And today, here we're going to get back to the thing that Paul wanted to say before he took the detour. So he's going to come back to kind of his main thesis, and it's in the form of a prayer. And so this is what he says. We're going to be in Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14, and going to verse 21. He says this, verse 14, For this reason I kneel before the Father. He's kneeling in prayer. He's passionate. He's moved to pray for his friends. From whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, I pray that out of his glorious riches... He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in, Jesus, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's pretty lofty language, right? It's pretty... Um, I mean, he, he's, he's expounding some really incredible things. Um, let me ask this, though, just to get started. What are some of the things that you heard? And we often dialogue as a church, so this is normal. Um, what are some of the things that you heard Paul praying for his friends? What are some of the things that he wants for them? You're like, shoot, I wish I was reading along. I don't... Oh, it is up there. Hey. <laughs> What are some of the things that Paul wants? Yeah. Yeah, that's funny, isn't it? Yeah, I want you to know something that you can't know. (laughs) That you would never know apart from knowing it. All right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so love is the key to unlock whatever he's talking about. Yep. I mean, I just want to say this real quick, too. I think a lot of times we can do or should do or whatever. Yeah, we're going to get back to that. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. Bob, what do you got? Uh, so tradition says that they crucified Peter that way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question, though. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so he's praying for God's power to be at work in them and through them. Uh, here's the this is the head scratching thing for me as I was reading through this. He's talking to believers, right? He's he's talking to the church. He's talking to people that have come to know Jesus, who are following Jesus. That's the assumption, right? But he's praying for some really peculiar things. He's praying that that Jesus would dwell in their hearts, that they would know the love of God, that they would be that they would have the Spirit pouring out of them, that they'd be filled with the fullness of God. Here's the question: Do they already have those things, or do they need to get them if they believe in Jesus already? (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah, like it's it's a both and. He's he's praying essentially that they would know what they already have, and and this was a hallmark of his prayer back in chapter one that we already covered. But if if you're in Christ, then you have Jesus dwelling in you. If you're in Christ, if you if you believe in Jesus, if you've come to know Him personally as Savior and Lord, you have the fullness of God in you. If you've come to Christ. If you're in Him, then you know something about the love of God. Otherwise, you wouldn't have come into a relationship with Him in the first place. So here's the question. Why does He ask for it then? 
Why ask for things that they already have? And I think it's because they have them, but they aren't experiencing what they have. They've been given something, but they're not tapping into what they've been given. Because it's, it's one thing to know about God's love, and it's a completely different thing to grasp how wide and long and high and deep that love is for you, right? You can have something and yet choose not to access it. Something can be true of you and yet you're not experiencing it. And that's, I mean, think of this. Paul is on his knees that they might experience what they have. That's how important it is to Paul. That's how passionate he is about this. He is literally prostrate before God going, please, Lord, give them these things. He says, I I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Now, the question I want to ask you guys this morning just to think about as we're starting this out is, have you experienced this kind of overwhelming, I mean, we sang this a few weeks ago, this overwhelming, never-ending, what looks like reckless love of God in your inner being. Is, is that happening in your heart? Because it's possible for you to have grown up in the church and not have it. It's possible for you to believe that God exists and to never have experienced that. It's possible for you to believe that Jesus died for your sins, rose again, ascended into heaven, sent His Spirit into your heart, and yet you know nothing of this overwhelming love of God penetrating your heart. That's why Paul's praying for us. In fact, as I was thinking about this morning, that's, that's what drove me to prayer. Because as I was looking at this, I'm like, it does not matter how eloquent I am on Sunday if the Spirit doesn't give you the strength to experience this I have nothing for you. This is all a waste if he doesn't show up and do it. Now the good news is that I believe, according to Scripture, he wants desperately to do that. And I I believe it because of what I read about in the Bible. I also believe it because of what I know to be true of people who have come to have that experience. And that experience has come to people from all walks of life, from every socioeconomic background, from every ethnicity in every country, speaking every, every kind of language. The Spirit of God, because of Jesus Christ, has come to rich and poor and black and white and male and female and young and old. It's come to everyone. And there are example after example after example of people who have experienced it including myself. You know who else experienced it? I mean, here, talk about somebody who doesn't fit the bill of someone you would expect to experience this kind of heart-wrenching, completely like lay-me-bare-before-God kind of experience of the Holy Spirit. There's a philosopher by the name of Blaise Pascal. Incredible genius, mathematician, He's French, so he's got all these things working against him. (laughs) 
When it comes to experiencing, I say that because I'm French. My last name's Frank Hor. Um, all these things are working against him to have the, it's not the kind of person you would go, yeah, that, that person's just overly emotional, you know, kind of experiential. They, they just, he doesn't fit that kind of bill. And yet, when he died, they found a note that was sewn into his jacket. And it said this, Year of Grace, 1654, Monday, 23 November. From about half past ten at night to about half an hour after midnight. All capitals. Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of philosophers and scholars. Certitude. Heartfelt joy. Peace. God of Jesus Christ. God of Jesus Christ. My God. Joy, 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 tears of joy, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, may I never be separated from Him. Does this sound like an Oxford scholar? Did God care? No. He experienced Him. He got got what Paul was praying for you and me to have. And there's, there are a lot of indications that he already believed in principle what suddenly became real to him in his inner being. In other words, it dropped from his head to his heart in a way that he couldn't explain, but in a way that obviously impacted him from the day that it happened on the 23rd of November until the day that he died. This is what happens. When God in His great love for you go from being a theory to a reality. You, go, you, you get to experience Him. He becomes real to you. And not only do you have an experience, but you get to experience what it's like to live according to a new power. A power that you didn't possess before. That didn't belong to you before that. But now you realize it's your own. I remember when I first came to to faith in Jesus, I was 21, and I had a similar experience to what I just read to you that Pascal had, of just, I had come to the end of myself, and and, um, God had shown me over a a season just how insufficient I was to run my life and the lives of other people. Um, and, and I was broken and I was ashamed of that and, and I just, my life was a mess and I, I remember just crying out to him. And then experiencing that overwhelming, never ending, reckless love of God coming in and, and him saying, I can do a much better job at running your life than you can. And I've been waiting for you to give up so that I can. And I remember shortly after that actually starting to see change in my heart. Going from someone who is timid to someone who is a little bit more secure and confident in who God was making me to be. And I, I remember one of my roommates, I lived in a household full of Christians and were more experienced than I was. Um, one of them saying to me, we were doing a Bible study, and he goes, I, I'm noticing some changes in you. And I remember thinking to myself, like, yeah, that's right. Like, I'm, I don't know, I'm like, in my heart, I was like, I'm going to take credit for some of this. And I, I remember thinking, like, yeah, I am changing. Like, I'm doing the right things. 
I'm, I'm doing the process. I'm, I'm getting into the Bible. I'm, I'm praying. I, you know. And then he said something that like totally shattered that. <laughs> and he, he goes, I'm, I'm seeing Jesus live his life out through you. I'm glad you're getting out of the way. I'm like, what kind of compliment is that? <laughs> That's exactly right. I was tapping into a new power that I didn't have before, that didn't belong to me, although God was sharing it with me. I mean, it's, we've used this illustration before, but it's like having an inheritance, right? That you, with a wealthy relative who passes away, and he just, you know that it's there. Somebody has put money into your account, and it exists there, and it's accruing interest. In, but for years and years and years, you, even though you know it's there, you, you don't access it. And then you, you hit a season of trial and, and suffering and financial difficulty. And in that season, you go, oh, I hey, wonder what ever happened to that bank account. But you go, nah, it's probably not that much. I, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to bother with it. And you live poor even though it's billions of dollars. Paul is saying that's exactly how most Christians live. That is exactly how most of us who are in Christ choose to live our lives. Because if you're in Christ, then you have this love that surpasses knowledge. You have the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. You have the One who can do more than you can ask or imagine. But if you're not drawing from it, then essentially you're living poor when you could be rich. I mean... This is the second of Paul's prayers, right? And the same is true of this one as it was the first one. Remember what Paul doesn't pray for? He never prays for their circumstances. I mean, these are dear brothers and sisters, people that he loves, people that he spent time with, people that he wants to succeed. And even though he knows firsthand how difficult their lives are and the things that they're facing, he never prays for a change of their Circumstances. He doesn't pray for them to be released from diseases or from robbery or from death. None of those things. He asks them for the power to know God's love. Accessible only by the Spirit of God. The only reason, folks, I can come up with for why he chooses not to pray for circumstances, but he prays for this, is because this is more important. That's all I got. That, that somehow this will make you able to face life no matter what your circumstances are. That's the only possible answer. Because Paul spent time with them and yet he's asking for something completely disconnected from their everyday lives, seemingly. So, so what is it that he's actually asking for? What, what is the power of the Spirit that Paul's praying for. Well, he says in, in verse 16 and 17, you're still up there, good, that He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And then he says this, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Now that word grasp is interesting because it, it doesn't just mean that you would believe something. It means what? That you would take hold of something. That you'd be able to, 
to grasp it, that it would impact itself on you and never let you go. And this is what the Holy Spirit does. This is his job. Um, I'll give you an illustration, but it's going to be a hard one for you guys that are young. Um, How many of you have ever taken a picture with a camera that is not digital? (laughs) All right, a lot of people in the... I saw a lot of hands stay down. (laughs) You notice I phrased it that way rather than the other way around that would, you know... Um, so stretch with me a little bit. It used to be <laughs> that when you would take a picture, you'd have this stuff called film. It was really annoying. It only came with like 12 pictures, you know, capacity on it instead of like thousands. But you would load this film into your camera and then you would snap it and it was like analog. And this is archaic technology now. I mean, you would rub sticks together and then you would take a picture. <laughs> so the, this is how it would work. The shutter would open. Light from whatever you're trying to take a picture would pour in. It would hit the film. Now, you had to have film because film was treated with a certain chemical that made the image, the light that would come into the camera, stick to that film. If You, you just couldn't load anything in and expect it to imprint the image. It had to be sensitized by chemicals. And if it was, then the image would stick. The film would grasp the light. And if you took a picture of a sunset, let's say, long after that sunset left you, you would still have the image of the sunset stamped onto the film. That's how photography worked. If you didn't have that kind of chemical reaction happening, then light comes in and hits it, and you still have a blank piece of paper. You don't have a recreation of what you were trying to take a picture. And that's a perfect image of what the Spirit does. Because here's how it works. If you don't have the Spirit, you can think and believe all kinds of things about God. You can believe that he's powerful. You can think that he loves you. You could be raised in the church. You could say, I prayed a prayer when I was seven years old, and that's how I know that God loves me. You could do all these things and know all these things about God. You could go to, you could go to seminary and get a graduate degree in theology and fill your mind with the truth of God. But that truth, without the Spirit, will not be stamped onto your heart. It will not sink in and change you. And And here's the result. You can have those things, the shutter opens, and God, you're shown who God is. And yet, even though you're shown, you still go through life feeling insecure, unsatisfied, unloved needing approval, or needing to prove yourselves to others. Because it hasn't changed you. But with the Spirit, with the Spirit, you you have the, the light of who God is. His great love for you in Jesus. His wisdom, His sovereignty, His goodness, His glory, His grace. They flood in and they hit your heart. Maybe through something like a sermon. 
or you're reading your Bible, or you're reading another book, or you're out in nature and you're experiencing His creation, something hits your heart and it sticks. And the result of it sticking to you in your life is that you begin to change. It changes you. So you experience God's greatness. You experience His care over creation and His sovereignty and you start to understand that He has a plan for you and for the world and that truth sticks to your heart and then you feel safe and protected. You're no longer insecure. You're no longer worried and full of doubt and fear. But it's it's imprinted. It's stamped onto your heart now. Or you experience... God's goodness. The fact that He is the source of all satisfaction and you encounter this God and then you feel satisfied and loved. You no longer look to a boyfriend, a girlfriend, your parents for a sense of who you are, for for your identity anymore to feel satisfied and loved and accepted and approved because the Holy Spirit has made the approval of God stick to your heart and now you're never the same. You experience God's grace come flood into your life and you're, you no longer go through life feeling like you have the need to prove yourself to yourself or to others or to God anymore. You feel free And by the power of the Holy Spirit, this is what happens to people who belong to Jesus again and again and again and again. Because Jesus said, look, I'm never going to leave you. I'm going to be with you to the end. So I was just in a coffee shop writing this very message on Friday. And I was racked with anxiety. I was worrying about a lot of things. My mind wasn't where it should. I wasn't getting anywhere. And Mandy and I had a conversation through text, and she doesn't even know this. She sent me, we weren't even speaking (laughs) verbally to one another, but she just sent me a text. And and it was basically just wondering again at the fact that God chose us. That He included us and plucked us out from our life and that he, he loves us and chose us. Uh, it wasn't like a huge thing. It wasn't like an eloquent you know, exposition of God's love. It was just simply, and the word chose us just jumped out from my phone at me. And I thought, wow, he did cho- choose me. I'm chosen and beloved in him. Like he has a plan for me and for us and f- for the world. Like, And that's all on his shoulders and it's not on my shoulders. And I immediately felt the Spirit give me rest. Have you experienced that? When the Holy Spirit comes and sensitizes your heart so that you don't just hear about it, but you grasp it and it holds you. It's the reason why the psalmist says this in Psalm 34, 8. Does it say, know that the Lord is good? Believe that the Lord is good? 
Now, it's much more intimate than that. Taste and see. Taste and see that He's good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in Him. This is this idea that like a house is going to give you refuge, but you can believe that that house will give you warmth and shelter in a storm, but you can still believe that and be standing in the rain, out in the cold, choosing not to enter in. There's a huge difference between that and going inside to feel the warmth of a fire during a storm. Have you felt the warmth of God's presence? Have you tasted His goodness? Have you seen His holiness and His beauty? If yes, that's the Spirit doing it. And if you would say, no, I've never experienced that. Please know I'm not doing this to condemn you or to shame you. In fact, Jesus Himself said, Dads even know how to give good gifts to their kids. How much more will your Heavenly Father, who's perfect, give who? The Holy Spirit to those who ask. Jesus said, God wants to give you Himself. He longs to give you Himself. So there's nothing keeping you on the outside looking in except for your own willingness to give you what God already wants to give you. And the Holy Spirit is who makes the love of God real. But here's the thing. He also makes the person of God real. Not just this abstract idea of love, but actually the person of God. Because verse 17 says, He does this so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And remember, He's talking to Christians who already have Jesus dwelling in their hearts through faith. But He's asking the Spirit to make that person into a real person. So many of us treat God as though He's an abstract reality rather than a real person. We walk through life and we think God is somewhere like up in heaven, removed, disconnected from my everyday life. He doesn't hear or see or care about my everyday condition. And what Paul is saying is that this is what the Spirit does. He takes Jesus who we would otherwise see as being removed from our life and He makes Jesus real. As real, if not more real, than the other people in our life. Because He's a person. I think, how often do I treat him as something other than a person that I can talk to, that I can hear from, that I can be around? He goes from being an idea to being a person who walks with you and gives you his love and his assurance and his direction and his peace. And here's how you know that this is happening for you. You know that this is happening for you when suddenly... His opinion of you matters most. Who He says you are carries more weight than who your parents and your boss say you are. Because you go to work and you hear, let's say from your boss, you know, you never measure up. You never get things on time. You never do the work of so-and-so. You're not valued here. Here's what the Spirit does when He makes Jesus dwell in your heart. 
it bounces off you. You know that whole like your words bounce off me and stick to you. Like that was the best comeback as a kid. Like <laughs> right? I mean you said that and it's like what else can I say? I don't know. I'm just going to go home now. <laughs> when that comes into your life, the real Jesus says that's not true. You have incredible value, incredible worth. I see who you are. I see the work that nobody else sees. It's valuable in my eyes. Work is unto me rather than unto them. When this is happening to you, his guidance over you carries more weight than the guidance of your friends. Your friends come up with all kinds of ideas for your life, do they not? If Jesus is a real person, you will filter their opinions of how your life should go through his word. And you go, no, 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 like that's not, that's not how to live a great life. A great life is a life lived unto Jesus by his power for his glory and everything that I do. That's, that's the guidance that matters most. That's what the words of life are for me. When he's real in your heart, your desires are secondary to his desires. You're no longer left to the desires of your own heart, but what he wants for your life now becomes paramount. See, I think the truth is, until Jesus is dwelling in every corner of your heart, until he's the most real person in your life, this is what I've found to be true in my life, we will continue to live lives of powerlessness. We will be influenced by the world. We will be influenced by our own desires. We'll be subject to every single person's opinion of us. We'll be subject to their approval over our lives. And we will be completely spinning our wheels. You might know he's there, but you're not drawing on him. When Jesus lives in every corner of your life, you experience the fullness of God. In other words, you experience His life lived through you. You start doing things and saying things and thinking things that you never would have done, said, or thought before apart from Him. And you go, where did that thought come from? I've never thought anything but negativity towards this person because they hurt me and now all of a sudden I feel compelled to love them. What is going on? You're getting the fullness of God. You go from being selfish to other-centered. You go from being proud to humble. You get permanently changed. It stamps onto your heart and onto your mind. Now here's the second thing. How then, if this is the spirit that does it, how do you access this power? How do you get to make him real? And uh, there's some practical things here, so don't check out on me. There's some things here that, that are practical ways that we can start to experience his power in our life. And here's the first one, and you're not going to like it. It starts with submission. It starts with obedience. It starts with laying your life down. 
I think so many Christians have not experienced the power of the Spirit because they have chosen to live lives of self-sufficiency and they don't submit to Jesus as King. They only want Him as Savior. Is Jesus just a ticket to an afterlife for you? Or is He life itself? If He doesn't show up in your day, in your heart, in your week, in your job, at your home, are you sunk without Him? If not, then you're not in touch with reality yet. And all of us get there. I mean, I've been there. I was there this morning. I was there yesterday. If we can't ask Jesus to fill us with His power, if we aren't submitting our lives over to Him in order to be filled. And Paul shows us what that looks like at the very beginning of his prayer. Because what does he say? Very first words. For this reason, I kneel. That's a posture of submission. In other words, he's saying, I submit myself to you. You're my king. I belong to you. And then he says, who do I submit to? I submit to the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. In other words, everyone comes from you and therefore you have authority over us all. Please direct me. Guide me. See, Paul isn't coming to God just for intimacy only. He's coming to Him for authority. And that's the same for us. We can't come to God for intimacy if we don't also come to Him with our obedience. To give our hearts over, to give our lives over. Now, I've found in my life this to be a true principle that there are many times when God asks me to do something and the experience of His presence doesn't come until I've obeyed. That obedience precedes experience. So often. I think so many of us, we, we play the shell game with God. You remember the shell game? Put a ball under a shell. Move them all around. Okay, God, I want, I'll show you this one. You know, please come in and give me intimacy. Give me your presence. I want to know you. I want to experience your power. I want your presence. And God's going, yeah, you haven't, you haven't shown me what's under the other shells yet. I can see what's under them. There's no need to hide them from me. We present ourselves to Him as though He can't see under the ones except for the one that we want to show Him. And we say, fill me with your fullness and your love. But it doesn't work that way. We have to kneel. We have to reveal. We have to show Him everything and say, God, You want to meet me in the midst of my mess as well as the midst of my obedience. Yeah. Yeah, right. Because, yeah, so like without the Spirit, here's what we do. We go, he doesn't deserve it. I did it once for him as a charity case, but now, like, it's his responsibility. And then here's what happens, though. Yeah, the Spirit comes in and goes, how patient have I been with you? How many opportunities have I given you? How, how much of your life have you squandered and yet I continue to love you, continue to pursue you, continue to give you grace? And it does something 
weird to our hearts where we go, okay, yeah, like, I believe that, I receive it, and so I'm going to give it. And we don't even have to think of it, right? It's not even like you have to like connect all the dots together in order to see that start to happen. You simply start to live out of the new power of the Spirit and you go, what was that all about? Exactly. Yeah. Yep, that's good. Pray for them while you're mowing the lawn. Let's see what God does with their prayers. Um, all right so so submission but the another thing is just regular prayer we have a habit of spending time with the spirit here as a church but just spending regular time it doesn't have to be long it doesn't have to be poetic it just has to be simple continual regular laying before god Remembering Him, saying, God, show me Your love. Holy Spirit, make Jesus real to me today. And as I said, He he loves to answer that prayer. Now here's the thing, like, will God answer it every single time you pray it? I don't know. But what if He does one out of a hundred? Would the other 99 still be worth praying? If you got the this love of God that surpasses knowledge just one out of a hundred times? I think so. Now here's the the third. So submission, prayer. The third is community because he says in verse 18 that we might have power together with who? With all the Lord's holy people. Who is that? That's the church to grasp. In other words, you need a community to really experience the fullness of God's love and the and the realness of Jesus. You need other people who have the Spirit living in them to come alongside you so that you can grasp together the love of God. It doesn't happen in isolation. And we keep coming back to this idea over and over and over again. But if you're not in a community yet where this is a regular practice, please make that step today. Let me just say, how many of you are in a community right now where this is happening? I mean, maybe where you are together and sharing life and okay so those of you who didn't just look at the hands who are up and talk to one of those people before you leave and then the last one is just is reflection that we should reflect on the love of god which just means to fill your mind with the truth of who god is and what he's done most people, when they think of that word reflection, they kind of attach it to like contemplation or meditation. What do most people think of when they think of meditation, contemplation, reflection? Emptying your mind, right? Did you say yoga? Yeah. Um, it's kind of an emptying your mind, like just get all the thoughts out, right? That is not what the Bible means when it talks about that concept. It actually talks about filling your mind. That you, that you take the truth of His Word and you take the truth of Jesus and you fill your mind with it and you meditate on it and you think about it. And Paul's saying, if, if the love of God is going to become real to you, then you have to grasp not just the general love of God, you have to grasp the specific love of Jesus. That's where you get 
the power to understand what God is all about is in Jesus Christ, His only Son. That's where we see Him most clearly. So, here's what we're going to do to end. Let's do that together. Let's reflect on, as God's holy people, the love of Christ and see what He does, okay? Let's practice Paul's advice. Verse 18, that we, together with all God's holy people, would grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God. Let's reflect on this for a second. How wide is the love of Christ? Like, I don't know. What are you looking for? Cubits? Like, (laughs) how wide is it? Let me ask you a different way. Who does the love of Christ include? That's the with. Everyone. Like, just the good people, everyone? Everyone, everyone. Yeah, even us. Especially the not-so-good people. Isaiah one eighteen says, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. The, the color scarlet and crimson, what is that a picture of? It's a picture of blood. It's God's way of saying through Isaiah, it doesn't matter if you've shed blood. I remember I had a, a neighbor, dear neighbor, just moved to Maine, and um, he had a teardrop tattooed under his eye. He was a former convict. I didn't know what that meant until he moved in across the street from us. And he would always qualify like his life because he'd go, yeah, like I did some really bad stuff, but I just want to let you know, like I'm trying to turn things around. And I always had to remind him again and again, it's okay, like you're included. We'd invite him to barbecues. We'd invite him over to our house. We'd we'd try to do stuff together with him because we wanted him to know that though his sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. God doesn't care what you've done. He doesn't care if you've destroyed your life or the lives of the people around you. His only son was crucified on a cross and His scarlet blood was shed for you so that in His sight you could be white as snow. That's how wide the love of Christ is. It includes you no matter what your life includes. How long is the love of Christ? Forever. Is it just as long as you're living a good life? Is it as long as you're obeying Him that He loves you back? Is it as long as you go to church and read your Bible and pray? It is, is it as long as you don't do those like really bad sins? No. John 10.27 says, My sheep, is Jesus, know My voice, And they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. No one can grasp those that I have my fingers around. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you 
might carry it to completion. No, He will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. His love is infinitely long for you. Not as long as you're good, but as long as He's good. He set His love on you. Revelation says that, he, that Jesus Christ was slain before the foundations of the earth. That means His love for you began before time did. I mean, comprehend that one. It's infinitely long. How deep is the love of Christ? See, in some ways, the depths of God's love is what makes all the others true. Because God didn't just write you a letter to tell you how much He loved you. He didn't write you a poem. He didn't write you a novel to tell you about His love. He came to show you the depths to which He was willing to go to get you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. He became what we are so that we could become what He is. He took on the wages of our sin, which is death, and He experienced the ultimate death for you and me. He descended into hell for you. That's how deep His love goes for you. Do you ever encounter somebody I have where someone says essentially something like, I don't need to believe in Jesus in order to know God's love for me? Like I, I, I know God's a loving God. He's just loving and caring. I know that. I don't need Jesus to know that God is, is loving. And I always think to myself, okay, well, if that's true, how much did it cost your God to love you? How much did it cost Him? Because if it didn't cost Him anything, then how do you know how deep it goes? How do you know how deep His love is for you if it didn't actually cost Him anything? If He, if he didn't have to sacrifice in order to love you? Because love sacrifices for the ones who are loved. My God loves me infinitely deep. He went where I deserve to go to get me out. I mean, we sing the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. How vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. That's how deep. Now, last one. How high? How high does His love go? Yeah. It's good to have love for yourself. Yeah, I think knowing the love of God actually enables us to love ourselves because we see that He made us in His image and gave His Son for us. And if He loves me that much, what right do I have not to love me? Right? Yeah, I mean, to some degree, we're told that Jesus went and set the captives free who were there. So He continues to love. What's up? Yeah. Yeah. So he, so he, in some sense, his love even penetrates the gates of hell. So I mean, that's something that we can get into more, you know, at a later time. But I appreciate you asking it. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, I mean, he, he, 
when Paul talks about heaven, he says, you know, we, we can't comprehend the things that God has in store for those who are in Christ Jesus. So in some degree, we have no concept. It's like, you know, I was akin to like a baby in his mother's womb trying to, like, imagine two twins that are in their mom's womb. One of them says to the other, what do you think it's like out there? I've, from what experience can they speak of, you know? Like, they have absolutely no idea until they're born. And I think that's, that's going to be true for us. But we get hints. But we do have the promise yep. in Christ Jesus. Yep. To be in that. Yep. Yep. Yeah, one of those promises is in 1 John 3, where John says to his friends, we are children of God, and what will, and and we will be. What we will be has not yet been made known to us. So there's that aspect. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. We're going to see God face to face. We're going to experience our our Creator. We're going to be able to look Him in the eyes. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, do you know that the love of God is so high that he will stop at nothing until he gains his most treasured possession, which, by the way, is you? That's amazing to me. Uh, we have to end. Um, but are, are you finding yourself moved as you hear this news again? Is your heart testifying with the Spirit that it's in fact true? Do you feel freer? Do you feel like Jesus is more real to you than when you walked in today? If so, that's the Spirit doing His job. That's the Spirit doing His job. Now, if you, you're like, no, that's, that's not me yet, but I want that to be true of me, And the only thing left for us to do is pray. So let's pray. And here's what I want to pray is verse 20 and 21. We often take this out of context, but this is what Paul is meaning. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power at work in us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is what he's saying. God can do immeasurably more than all you think or imagine. You may feel unloved. God doesn't care. His Spirit can override that. You may use your life to seek approval. He can come in and change that. You may feel forgotten. He wants you to feel noticed and loved and valued. You you may have had an abusive, distant father. He wants to be a new dad to you. You may not be able to forgive yourself. God wants you to receive his forgiveness that overrides that and changes you. The only way it's going to happen is if the Spirit does it. So let's ask him to do it. Holy Spirit, we ask you. No. First, we submit to you. You know every area of our heart and our life. You know the places that we open to you and the ones that we try to keep hidden. God, we lay it all before you.
We need your presence in every area. Holy Spirit, pour out the love of the Father. Make Jesus real. Give us a a taste. Help us to see that the Lord is good. You're a good dad. You love to give good gifts to your kids. Pour them out on us now.